As we were singing this morning, I was just reminded of the, the blessing it is to be the choir and to know that we don't, we don't come to have someone sing to us. We come to be the choir, to sing together the praises of God. We're coming, we're coming towards the end of the Gospel of John. I don't know if you see that coming, but just to warn you, we're going to begin next week, the last chapter. What a, what a blessing it has been for me, personally, as we've gone, gone through this wonderful gospel. But um, after, the, after the risen Jesus has made four previous appearances, so he's appeared four times, one time to Mary Magdalene, another time to, to the Mary, the mother of James, and, and Salome, and Joanna, and the other women, another appearance to Peter, and another appearance to Cleopas and his companion. So four separate times. Last week, we saw the fifth appearance of Jesus on that first Resurrection Sunday. So on that first day, five appearances. Last week, we saw the fifth. Jesus, he comes to the disciples as they're meeting together behind closed doors because they're fearful of the Jews. And Jesus announced to the disciples, the gospel of his peace. And we saw that was the first proclamation of the gospel after the resurrection. When Jesus comes to them and he announces peace to them, not just, not just any peace, but eschatological peace. It's here. It has arrived. It is ours. It is our possession in Christ. And he said to them, peace be with you. And we saw that's not just a wish and a prayer It's an announcement to us. That's the way it is. So this morning, we come, you know, Jesus is, he appeared to them, and then John follows up and says, but Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Thomas is the Hebrew word for twin, just spelled with Greek letters. So, it's the Hebrew word for twin. Didymus is just the Greek word for twin. So apparently, we don't, you know, what do we know about Thomas? Well, apparently, he was a twin brother. Um, and it was not, not unknown in that day to call you, if you were a twin, to call you twin. We don't do that. It doesn't make sense to us. But they did that. It made sense to them. We don't know who the other twin was. Um, or what really even Thomas's given name was. When he was born, I doubt his parents called him twin, but then you, you just come to be called that. So each of the other Gospels, if you read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they mention Thomas one time. Thomas is one of those disciples in the other Gospels that, I guess he's a disciple, but you hear nothing else about him. In John, we're given a little more insight into who he was. So I want to try to get into the mind of Thomas just a little bit this morning. In chapter 11, uh, Jesus was planning to go from Galilee where it was safe. You know, when you're in Galilee, you felt kind of safe. Um, But he's planning to go back up to Judea to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so we read in chapter 11, verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? 
So they're trying to persuade Jesus not to do that. But Jesus is not going to be dissuaded. And when they saw that, that he couldn't be dissuaded, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. What do those words tell you about Thomas? I invite you to think about it for a moment. What do you learn? On the one hand, I say to myself, well, Thomas was a true disciple. Any, anyone who has a willingness to die with someone, that reflects devotion. That reflects maybe even a kind of courage. If I'm willing to die with you, I don't know. There's very few I'd be willing to die with. On the other hand, Thomas assumes defeat. So it's kind of a double-edged sword here. I'm willing to die with him, and yet he assumes defeat. Before defeat is even certain. I mean, he, he may not get Jesus' words entirely, but his words don't encourage gloom and pessimism. If you read in chapter 11, Jesus had just said to them, Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble. Because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus said these things, and after that, he said to the disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him. That sounds good. Sounds hopeful. We use words like pessimism. We use, like, gloom. But I wonder what Thomas would have called it. Would Thomas have said, yes, I'm a gloomy person? But he said, I'm, I'm, a full, I'm just a pessimistic person. I think Thomas might have put it like this. I'm a realistic person. Isn't it, isn't it true that we can paint, uh, paint things in a more positive light depending on the word we use to describe it? So I think Thomas would have said, I'm, I'm realistic. The facts are this, and here's the facts. Let's just appreciate where Thomas is coming from here. Right? Okay. The fact is, Jesus has so far rejected all the acclaim of the crowds who love him. They wanted to make him king, and Jesus escaped. Right? Well, on the, on the other hand, the religious, religious authorities hate Jesus and are seeking to kill him. And everything Jesus does makes them hate him more. So I ask you, I just ask you, as realistic people... As people who look at the facts, where is that going to lead? All the people who love you and want to make you king, you, you reject all that popular acclaim. And then the people who hate you, you're walking right back into their territory. Where is that going to go? So let's, let's just be honest here. I think there's a sense in which Thomas sees more clearly than the rest of the disciples do. Because in fact, Jesus is going to Judea to die. This is the last time, this is his last trip to Judea. And he's going to die. In fact, it's going to be when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, that's going to be the event that leads to his death. Because they're going to say, oh, what are we going to do? They just raised Lazarus, now we need to, we're going to have to kill Jesus. 
Remember what Peter said to Jesus when, when Jesus t- said, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. Peter said to Jesus, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So maybe we could call Peter an optimist, right? What's going through Peter's head? He's saying, I believe you're the Messiah. So I don't care what the facts look like, you can't die. It's impossible. Thomas is a realist in your handout. Thomas is a realist. He wants to believe Jesus is the Messiah. He wants to believe that Jesus isn't destined for death in Jerusalem. But he's not so sure. He's a realist. If not a pessimist. And even if Peter can, even if the other disciples can, he cannot ignore the facts, the facts that are staring him in the face. This is leading to death. So already his belief, his faith, that Jesus is the promised Messiah is being shaken. I think of John the Baptist because we're like, well, how could Thomas do that? He's a disciple. Well, look at John the Baptist. He sent his disciples to go ask Jesus what question? Are you the expected one or should we start looking for someone else? That coming from John the Baptist. If John the Baptist, if Thomas can begin to doubt, can we? Thomas said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. What, I, I read that and it's just so full of, I don't know, I, defeatism, devotion, gloom, courage. From our vantage point, what's the problem with Thomas right now? He's a realist. What's wrong with being real? He's not burying his head in the sand like the other disciples appear to be doing. So what do we fault Thomas for here? Well, he sees the facts, but he's not interpreting them rightly. It's one thing to say, I'm a realist. I believe in the facts. But if you're not interpreting the facts right, what's the good? So Thomas rightly sees death in store for Jesus. But he supposes he's going to be called on to die with Jesus. Let us go die with him. What he doesn't see is that the death of Jesus will be in his place. That's what he doesn't see. He rightly sees death in store for Jesus, but he assumes that this death is going to be defeat, as we would, I mean, what? Don't we usually assume death is defeat? So that's what Thomas assumes. That's the fact. He's a realist. What he doesn't see, see, he doesn't see that in Jesus' case, death is going to be victory. Death is going to be triumph. Thomas is a realist. He deals in facts. But what happens when we can't see in your handout all the facts? That's that's the trouble with us, isn't it? We can't see all the facts. We never have, we don't, and we never will. What happens when we don't understand the facts that we do see? Not only do I not see them all, but the ones I see, I don't understand rightly. And so we misinterpret them. 
Getting a picture for Thomas. And there's a bit of Thomas in all of us, right? Just like there's a bit of Peter in all of us. In chapter 14, when Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room, so they're in the upper room, and Judas has gone out, Judas has left the room. Jesus says to his disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Now we get it, right? We get it today. Makes sense. Where is Jesus going? He's going to the Father. What did he say? In my Father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. And what's the way to where Jesus is going? What's the way there? Well, we know the way is Jesus. What does he say? Believe in God. Believe also in me. But the disciples don't get it. Now watch this. Watch carefully what happens here. Jesus says to his disciples before his crucifixion, when he says, and you know the way where I'm going, he's not saying, and you know what I mean. You understand what I'm talking about. See, understand that. Okay? Jesus says, and you know the way where I'm going. He's not saying, and you understand, and you get it. His point is this. Whether you realize it or not, you actually do know the way where I'm going. And you know the way, whether you realize it or not, because you know me, Jesus says. You know me. And he is the way. Now the disciples don't understand that, but that's not the point. Jesus is telling them, you know the way. So what should be our question then? Okay, if I tell you, you know the way, right, where I'm going, and you're like, well, I don't, I I don't understand. What should you say then? Well, what, what is this way that I already know? Right? Instead, Thomas says to Jesus. So it, the disciples would have been perfectly all right if they said to Jesus, all right, Lord, we know the way, uh, but what is that way that I know? You see? Instead, this is what Thomas says. Lord, Lord, we do not know where you are going, How do we know the way? Do you see a bit of a tension again in these words? What does this tell you about Thomas? What's going on in his heart? I mean, he he addresses Jesus with respect and honor. Lord, Thomas is a true Israelite. He believes the prophets. He believes God's promises of a Messiah. He's he's a godly, God-fearing man but he's plagued inside with this desire to deal in the simple facts as he sees them, as he understands them. And what's the facts? The fact is, I don't know where you're going. Therefore, the fact is, how can I know the way to where you're going? So I want to ask you, is this a genuine question motivated by faith in your handout? By faith? 
Is Thomas really saying, okay, Lord, we, I do know the way, but I just don't know. I, tell me what that way is that I know. How can we know the way? Or is Thomas kind of contradicting Jesus? Is he motivated by his realism? And I put realism in quotes because, as we can see, realism is not always real. Thomas's realism, his commitment to the facts as he sees them, is competing with his faith. I would like you to think about that. What happens when my realism competes with my faith? What does that mean? What do I do? And Thomas isn't alone. Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you have come to know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. To which Philip responded, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. What does Philip do? Instead of starting with the assumption that, I, well, okay, Jesus just told me I have seen the Father. So I must have seen the Father. So then I asked Jesus, how is it that I have seen him? Instead, so see, that would be coming from the ground of faith. Okay, I have seen the Father. How have I seen him? Instead, Philip begins with the assumption, I have not seen the Father. And Jesus, if you would simply show me the Father, then everything would be solved. And we would all understand. But in fact, Jesus has been showing them the Father all along. And they still don't understand. So Jesus answered Philip, have I been with you all so long? And have you not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? (laughs) Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? On the one hand, Thomas. Thomas is a man of faith. What's the label for Thomas, right? I mean, doubting Thomas. But wait a minute. Thomas is a man of faith. He believes in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He believes in all the promises of the Old Testament of the coming Messiah. He looks for the Messiah as a truly God-fearing man. On the other hand, Thomas is a realist who is committed to the facts, the facts as he sees them and understands them. How is this to be resolved? It's about to be resolved today. This is the Thomas. This is the Thomas who was not there with the other disciples. And that, you, I mean, what are the chances that this is the disciple not there? What are the chances, right? 
you see already the providential working and plan of God in making sure that there was one disciple, and that disciple was Thomas, who was not there on the day Jesus came to them. So the other disciples were saying to Thomas, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. What does that tell us about Thomas? Well, let's be careful. Is Thomas really, we, we, gotta, we have to do a major overhaul of our thinking here. We need to, this is, this is in part a, a vindication of Thomas, okay? Is Thomas really so different from the other disciples? So when Mary Magdalene and the other women, when they came to all the disciples and they told them, we have seen the Lord, they have two separate reports of seeing the Lord, what happened? Their words appeared to the other disciples as nonsense and they were not believing them. When the disciples said to Cleopas and his companion, when they said, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon, the, re- the fact is, unfortunately, that was probably more them expressing how much they wanted that to be true than actually having a full faith that he was really alive. How do we know that? Because when Jesus did come, what do they think they were seeing? They thought they were seeing a spirit. And Jesus said to them in Luke 24, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? These are the disciples that just said, Jesus is alive. He's appeared to Simon. Then when Jesus appears to them, they're like, I don't think that's Jesus. Why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. See. Why did the disciples believe? Because they saw. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still were not believing, now it's because of their joy. And we know what that that can be like. They were still marveling. Jesus said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of a broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. So here's the question. Given the fact that All the disciples doubted, every single one of them. Is it really fair for us to label Thomas doubting Thomas? Now, there is a difference. Thomas, it is Thomas who expresses his doubt with such obstinacy. We would call it obstinacy. In the face of five separate eyewitness testimonies, and the unanimous witness of the rest of the disciples. So we do get a little frustrated with Thomas at this point. Kind of. However, remember, it is not that Thomas doesn't want to believe. He wants to believe. With all his heart, he wants to believe. And it's not that Thomas is saying, he's not saying categorically, I won't believe. He's saying, I will believe. If only I can see 
in Jesus' hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side. See, I think what's going on here, Thomas is just being more honest with himself than the other disciples had been. When they all professed to believe Jesus had risen and he appeared to Simon and then when Jesus comes, they're like, I don't think that's you, right? They weren't being honest with themselves. Thomas was being honest with himself. He's a realist after all. His words imply, put it into perspective, why does he say, unless I see in his hands, unless I see in his side, that implies that Thomas was there at the cross. And that with his own eyes, he saw Jesus with pierced hands and pierced side, dead upon the cross. That was his last sight and vision of Jesus. He saw it with his own eyes. How then? How then can he be expected to believe that Jesus is alive unless what? He sees him with his own eyes. Now, brothers and sisters, Here's the key. Maybe, maybe you're already there ahead of me. In your handout, therein lies the problem. Because for Thomas, this is still just a matter of facts. Of believing or not believing that someone's alive or dead. That's it. It's just for matter, for Thomas right now, it's just a matter of confirming something that he is capable, that you would be capable, all of us on our own, of comprehending. Jesus is either dead or he's alive. That's it. In this sense, we could say perhaps that to see is to believe. If I see someone walking around, I say they're alive. If I see someone standing before me breathing and talking to me, I say they're alive. If I see them dead and I kick them and they they don't move, they don't respond, there's no heartbeat, I say they're dead. We can all figure that out. But the mere fact that Jesus is alive is not ultimately what Thomas is called to believe. That is not what Thomas is ultimately called to believe. For a whole week, Thomas went on wishing to believe, but stubbornly refusing his own wish. And after eight days, on the following Sunday, which is now the first day of the week again, His disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. In the providence of God, Jesus came, the doors having been shut and stood in their midst, and announced the gospel to them again. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, bring your finger here and see my hands. And bring your hand here and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but 
believing. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, this is not so simple as it sounds. I want to ask you, what is Jesus calling Thomas to believe? Simple question. What is Jesus calling Thomas to believe? Well, what does he say? Bring your finger here. See my hands. Bring your hand here. Put it into my side. Do not disbelieve that I have risen, but believe that I have risen. Is that all Jesus is calling Thomas to believe? Believe that I'm alive? Is is that it? The resurrection of Jesus is the one fact that finally makes sense of in your handout of all that Jesus has said and done throughout his whole earthly ministry up to including his death. The resurrection of Jesus is the single supreme fact that that enables us to understand and comprehend by faith, by faith, everything Jesus said and did for the salvation of our souls. And so it's the resurrection of Jesus that finally enables Thomas to understand by faith these words of Jesus, okay? Now we come full circle back to John 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you've come to know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus isn't just calling Thomas to believe he's alive. He's calling him to believe that he is the way. He is the way to the Father. He's calling Thomas, Thomas, do not be unbelieving, but believe that if you know me, you have known and seen the Father. Bring your finger here. See my hands. Bring your hand here. Put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but be believing in the fullest, richest, most wonderful sense of that word. Jesus isn't just saying, believe I'm alive. No, believe that I'm the way to the Father. Believe that when you see me, you see the Father. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Now, can you see how astonishing And how wonderful that is. Here is a a confession of faith that in your handout transcends by far anything Thomas could ever know based simply upon the facts. How 
How, how do you say, okay, now I'm going to evaluate all the evidence and all the facts, and oh, yep, Jesus is God. Okay, so Jesus is risen from the dead. Is that just sudden proof if to anyone with a reasoning mind that Jesus is God? No, no. The resurrection of Jesus merely enables Thomas to finally understand the words that Jesus has spoken. And as a man of faith, now that he understands those words, he sees the risen Jesus and he is compelled to fall before him and say and acknowledge, my Lord and my God. It's not just he believes Jesus is alive, is it? Thomas is no longer the realist here, is he? Does this look like Thomas the realist? Now, it is real, right? In just a single moment, the old Thomas, in a manner of speaking, is gone forever. He's not there anymore. This is not the Thomas who supposes that seeing is the key to his faith. We, we like to think, well, wait a minute, he did just see and now he believes. Isn't he, isn't he just confirmed in believing that seeing is believing? No, no. No, no, because Thomas didn't see anything to prove Jesus is God. No, Thomas saw Jesus alive, and then he understood by faith all the words of Jesus. And he said, my Lord and my God. This is the Thomas who's in your handout, whose faith now enables him to see. He believes now not just that Jesus is alive. He is, I mean, before he was like, I won't believe Jesus is alive unless I see all this. And now he realizes, oh my, I, I, I believe so much more than that Jesus is alive. I understand now the word he spoke that in Jesus I see the Father. And the light goes off in his mind, in his heart. I understand now that Jesus himself is the way for me to come to the Father. I understand, I see. I understand, therefore, that to believe in God, as I always have, is now to believe in Jesus. (laughs) And to believe in Jesus is to believe in God. And so it is Thomas. In the providence of God, it is Thomas, the previously unyielding realist and skeptic. And if that's in your handout, anyway, who has bequeathed to us the most profound confession of faith. We think of we think of Peter. We've done a biographical sketch of Peter and the transformation worked in Peter, given who Peter was. We think of Paul and the miraculous moment-in-time conversion of Paul from the persecutor of the church to the great apostle of the church and to the church. And now we see in Thomas the skeptic, the realist, converted in a moment, in a moment of time, to the one who has left us the most profound confession of faith. Thomas answered and said to Jesus, My Lord and my God. How did Thomas 
finally arrive at this confession of faith. Not ultimately on the basis of what he had seen. What he had seen was not enough to bring him to that confession. But on the basis of the sovereign word of Jesus, who said to him, Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Believe. Not just that I'm alive, Thomas. I know you said that you wouldn't believe I'm alive until you saw me, but but don't just believe that, Thomas. Believe now the word that I have spoken, which in your handout demands that I must be alive. Thomas answered and said to Jesus, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Now some translations, in fact many, make this a question. Because you have seen me, have you believed? Which implies that Jesus is kind of casting doubt on the legitimacy of Thomas's faith. You know, have you really believed, Thomas? I mean, if you're just believing me because you saw me, is that really believing? Uh, that, is, I'm just, that is not what Jesus is doing. And I don't believe, therefore, it should be translated as a question. There is no question mark in the Greek. The form doesn't mean it should necessarily mean it's a question. I believe, what, what is Jesus doing here? Why does he say this? He's just drawing attention to what so far has been true of all the apostles, of all the, of all the disciples. Let's just remember, they have all believed that Jesus is alive, at least initially, because why? They saw him. That's not an inferior faith. That is not a less authentic faith or a faith somehow less pleasing to God. Remember again, Thomas was never unbelieving in the absolute sense of that word. Neither were any of the other disciples except Judas Iscariot. They all believed all along in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who spoke through Moses and the prophets. They all believed all along. They all believed all along. And now they believe too that Jesus has risen from the dead because they have seen him. But this begs the question, not of the validity of their faith, but of our faith. So I ask you, what what about now? Jesus has gone away into heaven. What about you and me who've never seen Jesus? Is our faith inferior? Is our faith somehow less, like, less legitimate, less for real, less certain than theirs is? The answer to the question is found, first of all, in Thomas himself. Thomas believed at first because he saw. To see was to believe. But in your handout, seeing 
cannot finally explain Thomas's confession. He does not simply confess, you are alive. What does he say? My Lord and my God. In the end, Thomas discovered that to believe is to see. And so far and so long, as we insist on saying to see is to believe, we will never truly see. By faith, Thomas came to see what the resurrection of Jesus meant. And therefore that the resurrection of Jesus had to be. Because he always was a man of faith. Again, if we arrive at this faith, and my, my prayer and trust is that we all have believed, but here's the question. If we've arrived at this faith without ever seeing ourselves, none of us have seen. Is this faith that we have, is it somehow inferior, somehow less valid, less certain than the faith of those who did see with their own eyes? That's the question Jesus answers for us. First, we do hear the gentle reproof in his words to Thomas. You know, some of us might say, Jesus shouldn't have appeared to Thomas. He didn't even deserve that. Right? But no, Jesus did. And yet Jesus does reprove Thomas very gently. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now I'm going to ask you, what is Jesus doing there? And you think about it, because this is where we go with this sometimes. Is Jesus calling Thomas to a second-rate faith? Thomas, I know it's only going to be because you've seen me, but at least believe because you saw me. At least that's better than nothing. No, no. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's calling Thomas to the same faith to which he calls you. The same faith to which he calls me. There is no judgment here of the quality of Thomas's faith. That is not the issue. So erase that from our minds. Jesus isn't saying, do not be unbelieving but believing and what, you know, second-rate faith. No, the issue here is only the validity of his unbelief. Do you see that? There is no no statement here in this passage about any inferiority of Thomas' faith. His faith surpassed at some levels, I'm sure, our own. The question is the validity of his unbelief. Was it valid? As Thomas himself can now see and understand, he should have believed. And he could have believed without seeing. So Jesus continues in verse 29. Blessed are those, or blessed will all those be, who did not see and yet believed. Since we have this so stuck in our minds, I want to say again, 
Jesus is not implying the inferiority of Thomas's faith. As though he's going to be less blessed than everyone else. You know, Thomas, you only believe because you saw. But blessed is everyone else going to be more blessed than you, Thomas. Because they believe without seeing. That is not the point. Jesus says, Thomas, you believed because you saw. Nothing wrong with that. Right? That's what all the disciples did in the beginning. But, but Thomas, your unbelief was not valid. Your unbelief was not valid before you saw. And so the point is rather this. When Jesus says this, his point is that our faith, my faith, your faith, the faith of those who have never seen is in no way inferior to the faith of those first disciples who did see. On the one hand, Jesus reproves Thomas for his unbelief before he saw. On the other hand, Jesus pronounces you and me to be, in your handout, equally blessed. With Thomas, we who have believed even though we've never seen. As even Thomas himself came to understand, to believe is to see. So, it's in the light of this example of Thomas. And what a wonderful, John has been writing his gospel so that we might believe. We who have never seen. It's in the light of this example of Thomas and these wonderful words of Jesus that the Apostle John concludes, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also did in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you, who's you? You who have not seen may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That is believing in the fullest, richest, most wonderful sense of that word. I want to say it one last time, which is the title of this sermon. Brothers and sisters, to believe is to see. It is to see with such clarity, with such beauty, with such power that we are never the same again. Even as Thomas was never the same again. By faith, we see what the resurrection of Jesus means. And therefore, we see that the resurrection of Jesus had to be. It had to be. And so, quoting now Peter, without ever having seen Jesus, and I pray this is your testimony this morning, and if it is not yet your testimony, may it be this morning. Without ever having seen Jesus, we love him. 
And we say to him with joy inexpressible and full of glory, my Lord, my God. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you work in the hearts of us, your people, that we would rejoice in the gift of faith, in the gift of faith, which is not a burying of our heads in the sand. In fact, it is the only true reality. It is what is truly real. Thank you, Lord, that we who have not seen with our eyes the risen Jesus are yet blessed because we have believed. Believed not simply that he's alive, but believed that he must be alive. And that in seeing him and believing in him, we have seen the Father and believed in the Father. And that in coming to him, we have found the one who is the way and the truth and the life. And that we truly indeed have life in his name. Father, thank you that, that our faith today who have not seen is in no way inferior to the faith of, of Thomas. And we thank you that even as we look at Thomas and we see his life and his transformation in a moment of time from the unyielding skeptic and realist to the one who has left us this profound confession of faith. We thank you that you are a God who works these same transforming miracles in each one of us. You know where those miracles need to be worked, what they look like, what they are. And we confess that all of these miracles are ultimately worked through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So do that work, we pray, by your grace in us for your glory and our joy. Prepare and fit us, Lord, by your grace now to receive the Lord's Supper with thankfulness. Help us as we sing to be echoing with Thomas his worship and adoration for our risen Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.